Sunday evenings, if I'm not mistaken, um, but one that was, um, it was hugely encouraging. Sometimes you just needed to watch something that was encouraging. It was always good to watch this show, um, to be encouraged by it, but maybe you remember Extreme Makeover Home Edition. <laughs> I remember that show, um, where they're... A lot of times they would come in, there's a family that maybe had walked through something really difficult. Um, sometimes there was um, loss in the family of different things, of different ways, from those who have died or, or fires or whatever it might be. And, and they're in a tough, difficult situation and scenario, and people have nominated them to have their, their, ho- their house remade. And if you remember, they, they go in and they, they don't just uh, do a makeover of the house. It's, it's, it's a complete demolishing of the house down to the foundation and they within a short amount of time they they build this house and uh if you remember it's just totally new it's totally better it's just totally bigger and just radically transformed home and then at the end they have the family they reveal the house they have them behind a bus so that in such a way that they haven't seen the house yet and they move it and then and then they just go crazy and they worship the house, which is kind of bizarre But in the moment. But we kind of overlook that um, because they're excited. Um, but this is this radically new house because they come and they redo these things. I think my, my father-in-law got to work on one of those houses once. But he said he was working on something. And they said, hey, can you work on this other thing? And one of the hosts kind of stepped in and started doing what he was doing and videoed. And then he got to go back and finish up. So uh, TV's not everything, you know. But um, the, the picture of that... I was reminded of, of the, that, just taking this whole home that was just totally made new, just radically new, and so much better, and so much grander, and, and better in every single way possible. And we have the story that we walk through today where Christ comes in, and in this miracle, in this sign, we begin to see and know that when Jesus steps in, um, things become radically new, and so much better and greater as a savior of the world arrives on the scene. And this in the Gospel of John, it's the first sign of Jesus, the first miracle. But John always refers to them as signs, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But often, chapter 12, the, or 2 to 12, is called the book of signs because there are all of these miracles, these seven signs of Jesus, from um, Jesus turning water to wine in chapter 2, from healing the official son in John 4, healing the lame man who's um, at the pool in John 5, feeding the 5,000 in John 6, walking um, on water. Jesus walks on water in the beginning of John 6, or the, the second part of John 6, and then healing of the man born blind in John 9, and then in John 11, kind of carrying over into 12, we see Je- the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So we have these seven signs, this book of signs. So we're going to be walking through that for a while, these book of signs. And even chapter 2 to 4, they're bookended a little bit with stories that are connected with Cana. So we have this connected. And in these stories, we're going to see all these new things. There's, there's this new wine that we see. We have um, also some new, a new temple. We have new birth and all different things that we're going to see in these of newness and abundance that we'll see in these chapters. Now today in our chapter, there's several things in this passage that are connected with some Old Testament um, traditions or Jewish traditions, Jewish customs and Old Testament symbols and things that the first century audience, as John wrote this, would have been really, um, they would have keyed in on. They would have understood it, um, it without any kind of explanation 
but we need to kind of look in and see some of these Old Testament symbols that are going on here and some of these importances of, of the wedding and, and wine and things so that we can find some understanding of some things going on in the background. So things that are going on in the background of this story. And the first is that of the setting of a marriage and the wedding traditions that we see there in the wedding. So wedding uh, in that time, like ours, it, it's a big celebration, big joyous celebration, great importance. And in that time, the whole community um, would be here. So if, we, if you were from Derby Hill, all of Derby Hill would be part of this um, ceremony and part of this celebration. The whole community was involved, and people from families would come from far, and um, friends would come. We see that even in this passage, similar to how we might celebrate and have people come in for this celebration. But it was a lot longer of a celebration, a festival. Could it last up to a week long? So this is not a short time, but a long time. This is one description of uh, the wedding ceremony and celebration during that time. This is how it was described. The wedding celebration was considered to be the most grand event in life, especially among the poor, which you could understand. You could maybe made much of for a little bit. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and the groom were taken to their home in a torchlit parade, complete with a canopy over their heads, and they were always taken among, along the most meandering route possible so that everyone, everyone would have an opportunity to wish them well. And instead of a honeymoon, they had an open house for a week. Now, doesn't that sound fun? Right? <laughs> I think some of Kelly's um, aunts wanted to have a, another reception little thing for her the day, the day after, the morning after our wedding. And we were like, no, like, no. <laughs> we're, we're on honeymoon. Uh, but see, a whole week-long festival. And the wedding uh, symbolized, it, it would point to, in the Old Testament, wedding feasts, and that would point to the Messiah coming in the Old Testament. Uh, the Messiah, the Savior, had arrived, and the age of the Messiah had entered. And there's a symbol of weddings. We see that in Isaiah 54 and Isaiah um, 62 and in other places in the Old Testament. Um, we also think in just a few weeks, when we'll be in John 3, we'll see John the Baptist. He talks about the picture of a bride and a bridegroom and Jesus being that bridegroom and the bride, his people. And so we see symbolism there that he speaks about in John 3. So we're going to see that in a little bit. So we see that connection to, to this wedding feast and the Messiah coming. Uh, this is from Mark, Mark 2, chapter 19 and 20. When we walk through that, uh, there's a time where the religious leaders question the disciples and them and Jesus. They're not fasting. What's going on? And Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom, speaking about himself, is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So there's celebration. Christ was there. So he was the bridegroom. And then in Matthew 22, Jesus uses the parable of a wedding feast and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of symbolism with the coming of the Messiah and weddings and the wedding feast and the celebration of that time. And then also there's symbolism with wine in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, wine also was a picture of the Messiah coming, and there would be abundance of wine, and there's celebration and feasting that happens. We see that in Jeremiah 31 and in Amos 9. So we see a parallel also with the wine. So in this, we have this scene of a wedding 
feast and wine, and we have this, the coming of the Messiah that enters in. So I can say that we can be confident that this is going on in the background, these symbols, as we see the story about Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah who has come, the anointed one, the one who's prophesied to be Savior, who would come and reign as king in the line of David. And we see that here in the setting today. So let's get into the first, the first verse in chapter 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So here's the beginning setting. It says, On the third day. So this is two days have passed since Jesus had called Philip to follow him, and Philip had gone and gotten Nathaniel, and there's a lot of different titles that we see of Jesus, of who he is, and they're understanding who he is, and, and all of this is going on. So this is a couple days after that. And now one thing you could see, um, if you were to go back, that John has given us sequential days, and said day one, and the next day, and the next day, and so on. Uh, you may have seen that. And some have looked at that, and we do, depending on how you look and count up the days of when it began and when it ends, it's about for that full week, like a seven-day period. And some see that as a picture even echoing of that creation account um, and that here we're on day seven, and here Christ begins that first miracle. I don't know. Um, I've kind of wrestled with that a little bit. I don't know if that's there or not, but you can, if you want to study that a little bit, there's some interesting things that maybe that uh, John was pointing to even creation as we get to the seventh day, possibly. But there's this wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus is there, and and Jesus has been invited, and the disciples come along. And probably at this point, uh, the disciples that we've seen is probably all of the ones that we've seen so far. So probably Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and and the unnamed disciple, likely the, the apostle John. And then Jesus' mother is there, and they come from Nazareth. Not, Nazareth wasn't too far away from Cana. Uh, it was probably about nine miles. There's some, uh, still some, a little bit of speculation of exactly where Cana was, but it probably wasn't very far. And Jesus and his family, they must have been either close friends of the family, or it could have been relatives as well of this wedding. So they've been called in. They, they want to to participate in this celebration. So they're invited in. Again, the celebration that could last up to a week long. Uh, so this, is a, this is a long, exciting, fun event that everyone gathered to. And you got free food, and you got free wine, and people went and celebrated this wedding together. But um, we have a problem. Um, so we have a problem that, that comes in in verses 3 and 4. So we have the problem. I know my points aren't really creative this week. I'm sorry. <laughs> They're a little, you got you to fill in a little bit, all right? But it's the problem, verses 3 and 4. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, that, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Uh, so we have this problem that comes about. They've run out of wine. There, there's no more left. And the custom would have been, again, that the bride and his, or the bridegroom, I'm sorry, and his family would provide the guests with food and wine for this whole festival. And now the wine has, 
has ran out. There's no more left. There's no of the thing that was expected to be there. And it was a great shame. This is a shame and honor culture. So this would have been a great embarrassment. It kind of, yeah, it'd be the same at our wedding. If you come and you don't have enough cake and maybe you have wine or maybe you have that punch if you're, you're Baptist and you have that with the Sprite and the pineapple juice and Kelly said you put Jello mix in it. I don't know. Well, whatever she makes, it's really good. But you're, there, was, there was literal shame upon the family for, for this running out. And I also read there's some accounts that you could actually take the family to court because they didn't provide for you. But it's probably because you provided when your kids were, were married and now you need to provide. And so there was a lot really at stake in this picture. So the wine is gone. And as I studied that, it has been suggested that there's a subtle reference here of just the spiritual dryness of Israel as well. They become a people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are so, so far from God. So the wine is gone, and this would have been a fermented wine. Um, they didn't often serve it at full strength. It was either cut by a third or a tenth, and probably as that wedding went on, it was cut by more and more water, and we see that um, referenced even in here. Um, and that maybe it even improved the taste of that pure, pure wine in it, um, in the wedding feast. So we have that going on. I'm not going to go into a lot of back and forth about uh, drinking wine or not. That's, I don't think that's the point of the text, so that's not where we're going today. But what is, Mary, what is Mary expecting of Jesus might be a question. What does she want of him? What is she asking of him? And, and there's been a lot of speculation and thoughts. And did she want him to perform a miracle? Did she say, remember that other time when you turned water to wine? I, but I don't think that's what's happening. That's not what's happening here. Because John records that this is the first miracle of Jesus, the first sign of Jesus. But Mary, here we know apparently at this point, Joseph has passed away. He has died. And we don't see any more accounts of Joseph during the life of Jesus. And even as Jesus dies on the cross, he gives a responsibility to the beloved disciple to take care of his mom. Um, so Jesus, as the firstborn son, would have been responsible to take care of the family. And no doubt he was a uniquely capable and obedient firstborn son uh, that had provided in great ways for his family. And where Mary, no doubt, knew the wisdom of Jesus, the resourcefulness of Jesus, and who he was, and relied on him. And he knew she began probably to understand the authority of Jesus and, and all that that carried with him. So she goes to Jesus, um, that there is this problem. There's great shame to come about this family. Maybe Mary was, was part of helping in, with the family and the wedding feast at some point in it. And she goes to the right one. She goes to the right person for help. She goes to Jesus. I think that's a significant thing um, as we see this picture of her going to the right one. She's teaching us things that she might not even be realizing in the moment that we need to go to Jesus. I think of last week, Jonathan, he preached through Colossians 1, and, and part of that passage talks about how Jesus holds all things together. And Jonathan talked about how Jesus is the glue of the universe and he asked, when all things are falling apart, do we run to the one who holds everything together? And I think that's a good question. Do we run to the one who holds all things together? Or do we run just to more broken things that need to be fixed themselves? Or do we run to Jesus? So, so Mary, she runs to the right person. But it seems that maybe her timing and her asking of Jesus might not be the best. Because um, Jesus responds and says, um, woman... What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
So Jesus, he answers Mary in an abrupt manner. But one thing, it is abrupt, but he's not speaking uh, disrespectfully or in a derogatory way or a rude way or speaking even down to her. That's not what's happening here. And I think it's hard for us to understand being so far removed from the culture and, and even from that place. We can't hear the tone of Christ's voice or see the expression on his face. But this, this reference of, of woman, he wasn't, again, not talking down to her. Some have suggested that maybe a word that we could use in English might be that of ma'am. Uh, or maybe in the NIV, in the original, in the 84 edition, it translates it, dear woman. So maybe that could be a translation. But we see, and we can know that too, just by looking at John, is there's other times where Jesus refers to a woman and says, woman. But he's not, again, speaking down to her. You think the woman at the well, he refers to her in this way. Or Mary Magdalene in the garden after his resurrection, he refers to her that way. Or even Jesus on the cross again, when he um, is dying and he turns to the beloved disciple, again, probably John, and he turns to Mary and says, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple, behold your mother. So here we have this. And clearly he's not speaking in a disrespectful way to Mary. So um, he's speaking abruptly, uh, but not disrespectfully to her. And he does, though, he does ask and say, what does this have to do with me? Or literally it is, what is this to you, to me? Um, So he's saying to her, this isn't really your place to direct my ministry in this moment. Things have changed. Um, He's fully submitted, as we're going to see in chapter 5, if you continue to read through John, that he's submitted to the will of God the Father. And he's following the will of the Father in this. And so it's indicating, as he addresses Mary, this change in relationship as Jesus enters into his ministry. For sure, that is happening. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And we're going to see that phrase throughout John that Jesus uses. And um, we see it in John 7, 6, and John 7, 30, and at one time in John 8, another time in John 12, a couple times in John 12, another time in John 13 and John 17. So several different ways Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. And as he's doing this, he's speaking about, Jesus is speaking about his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and ascension and exaltation. So uh, he's saying, this is not my time. Um, he's pointing to, though, to the time when he would die and rise again. And he is the Messiah coming in to usher in this new age and this new covenant, this new relationship that would be symbolized by a wedding feast, an abundant wine, and a joyous feast. But he says, my hour has not yet come. And I think it's interesting that this is so far or so early in the gospel. And as readers of the gospel, and those first readers, as they were reading through it, they would have seen, and we've seen, like, oh, that last hour, what is he speaking of? And it piques our interest, and we begin to look forward. And so from the even beginning of the gospel, he begins pointing to the very last part of the gospel, the last chapter, speaking about him as the suffering servant, the Messiah, who came, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, to die for us. So it's beginning And we see the revealing a little by little of where we are going in this story, this true story of Christ. So we've seen the problem here. And what is the response of Jesus, the abundant provision that we see of Jesus in verse 5, verse 5 through 12? His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
So Jesus, nonetheless, uh, he has assented to help Mary. Now, there aren't any words exchanged. We don't have a record of that, but kind of, I wonder, maybe it was just a knowing look of a son to a mother, and she knew, okay, he's going to help. I don't know. Uh, but he then begins and he performs this sign, this miracle. Again, it's a, it's a bit in the background. The servants see it. And not all of the crowd seems to be in on all that's going on here. But he performs this miracle. So Mary says to the servant, uh, to do, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And Mary, she's speaking more truth than she probably knew at the moment but what good words are those? Do whatever he tells you. Those are words that we can live by with Jesus, that we can trust his words and that we can do what he calls us to do. We can trust the words of Christ. We can trust all the words of scripture that are breathed out by God that tell us how to live and how to walk. And we can't go wrong if we follow Jesus. So this call, even a lesson for us, may we do all whatever he tells us to do. He's a good Savior and shepherd, an abundant provider. May we do what he tells us. So, he, so the mother of Jesus, Mary, says to the servants, do, do whatever he says. And then verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So we ha- here we have this where Jesus, he he points to the, to the gallons are these jars that have 20 to 30 gallons. They could fill that much up. But these are stone um, jars here. And it seems like they are probably, at this point, bone dry because they have to be filled up again. And they were used in Jewish rites of purification. Um, so probably um, at the scene of a feast... Probably they're speaking of the purification of washing of hands before a meal and washing of utensils because the background is that of a feast that's going on here. So we have these six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons. So you have about 120 to 180 gallons of water capacity of wine, a new wine capacity here. So Jesus, he's not just going to provide a, a couple pitchers of wine or a couple gallons, but he's going to provide abundance of this new wine here. And as I was studying, there's several uh, biblical scholars, they, they point as they're thinking at this and thinking of Old Testament things and what was going on in the context, they all point out that there's this picture of these empty jars used for Jewish purification rituals and rites And we see this corresponding wine that's run dry, and it seems to be pointing to the emptiness and dryness of the spiritual state of the people, the Jewish people during this time. Dr. Cook, our pastor back in Kentucky, he wrote this about this. He said the fact that they had run dry out of wine indicates the bankruptcy of Pharisaical Judaism. Rituals like the stone stone water jars for purification were all it had left. Jesus' ministry could not be contained in old forms. God had kept the best until now. Paul put it like this, the old has gone, the new has come. So there's something brand new breaking forth, and there's a repurposing of these stone jars. Everything is changing at the arrival of Jesus. He's coming, he's fulfilling the law of Moses, and he is the Messiah, the Lamb of God, prophesied of old coming in and making all things new. Think of the first 
few verses in John, we'll look back to them throughout our time because that was a prologue. It had all these big themes that we're going to run into time and time again. And verses 16 and 17 in verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 1 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So reminded that the law given to God's people, given to Moses, didn't bring about salvation the fullness of God's grace. No one could fully obey the law. And there was no purification ritual that can make one fully clean. But here now Jesus enters in and fulfills these things. And he replaces them with something much bigger and better and greater than anything before. And it does remind us of 2 Corinthians 5.17 that says, Therefore, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. And then um, Jesus does say, fill those jars up. And what do they do? They fill them up to the brim. So they obey right away. And they didn't just partially fill those jars up. Uh, They fill them to the brim, to the tippy top, ready to spill over edge of those jars. And and it could be here, uh, John painting a little bit of a a picture of obedience to Christ too. Uh, There's not an obedience of just doing filling up a little bit of the way, allowing Christ to to come in and and to change our lives in this part or that part, but just to totally fill up and obey him in all ways. And it's good uh, to allow Christ into all areas of our life. It's not a a bad thing, but it's a good thing. And we see this picture, these jars being filled up to the brim, complete obedience to Jesus. And then verse 8, And he said to them, Now draw out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So a second command comes, Hey, take, take some of that wine, take it to the master of the feast, um, the master of the banquet, the ruler of the table. And this would have been someone who was in charge at that, at that banquet. A charge of the distribution of wine would have been part of his job. So he gets to taste first and then take it out to the crowd. So they bring the wine to him. And at this point, that water has turned from water to wine. So it's gone from H2O to wine to O. Or I don't know. I don't know how it works, but... Jesus knew, and he changed it, and he did radical things. And Again, it, it points back to the beginning of John and echoes some of those things in the prologue that Christ is creator. Jesus is a creator of all things, as John 1, 2, and 3 says, that Jesus, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Christ is creator. He could do this. Um, we don't have to explain it away. He just made that water into wine. And then, amen, all right. And then, verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where to come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He kept the good for last. So they, the servants, they take that wine to the master of the banquet. He takes of it, and he is blown away. <laughs> He's like, what is going on here? Uh, no, no doubt, no doubt, this is the best wine he has ever tasted. <laughs> As he he's, gets and drinks this wine, he's amazed. He can't understand the hospitality 
and the generosity of this family. And he says, yeah, normally you let people drink a little bit and then you serve the bad stuff. By the time um, they are less discriminant about the quality of the wine and you bring out the cheaper stuff and you serve that. But you've done the opposite. You've saved the best for last. And I can imagine again him thinking, I didn't even know wine could be this good. <laughs> it's good stuff. And there's sometimes, there's times in life where, where it might be that way, where you have something where you're like, I thought I had the good stuff. And then you're like, wow, this is so much better. Even growing up, this is a silly story, but um, we, uh, we like to go to Pizza Hut. And our family, our, Marcia and I, my sister and I, we thought the only pizza was hamburger pizza. Except we thought that was it, and we didn't realize till later on. There were so many varieties of pizza, and, and so there's moments, and I think that was one of those moments. He's like, wow, you've saved the best for the last. This is amazing new wine. And we're going to see throughout, though, the Gospel of John that Jesus uses, and throughout the Gospels, that Jesus uses the physical world to teach us spiritual truths, and we see that again and again. Again, that's what's happening here. So we have this picture painted here of the abundant provision of Jesus who, who steps in and makes all things new. He's reversing the effects of the curse and the fall and the brokenness. He came to rescue and to save. He came to, to make us new creations in him, that he would save us and rescue us and make us new, and not just halfway, um, but fully he does it in fullness, and that we might uh, be new creations in him, totally new, totally better, totally just bigger and better in Christ. As Jesus says in John six thirty four. later, he's going to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is who Christ is. We see these beginning things happening here in this chapter. We are reminded that Jesus is the light of the world a light that the darkness cannot overcome. And he's arrived to bring, make things new in him, to bring the fullness of grace and truth, grace upon grace, as we've looked at and studied, abundant grace and truth, uh, overflowing, outpouring from him. And we see that in him, and we can, we can trust him. Uh, we can give ourselves fully to him and know that he is good and trust him in all things, the one who provides. And then we see there's a a great impact as well. And we see what this miracle, this sign is showing about Jesus as well, as John tells us. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here this first sign comes, this first miracle. John, he always says signs instead of miracles. They're signs because they're pointing to something else. They're also, they're teaching something. There's a significance behind these signs. This sign pointed to the glory, the glory of our God. And it's not so much about the power of that moment of that miracle, but what it reveals. And these signs are going to reveal and teach us about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the one who came to say the one in whom we can believe and we can follow. And here, this miracle again reveals and manifested the glory of Jesus. The disciples began to see who Jesus was, and it stirred in them belief and faith. Again, echoing back to chapter 1, verse 14. 
and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this sign manifested the glory of God, of Christ, and it produced a response of faith in the disciples that they believed in Him. And if you can remember, as Jesus called the disciples, He said to them, come and see, and they came and they followed Him, and they they had questions, no doubt, and they talked back and forth, and they came away saying, this is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the King of Israel, and we know this. And now it's clear that they go not just from an intellectual ascent that this is the Messiah, but now they believe in Him. They trust in Him. They place their life and their faith in Him, and they believe. And just as we can, trust Him and give ourselves to Him and trust Him in all things. And just as the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to see, as John wrote it so that we might believe, if you remember the end of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it points to the truth that he wrote these things that we might believe. And again and again and again, we're going to see these stories where something happens, Jesus speaks, or does a miracle and a sign happens, and people believe. And John writes that we might believe, might we be stirred to greater belief, or maybe that initial first step of belief, or maybe we're wrestling with him, and we walk through John again, stir it again and again, that we might believe in this Messiah, this one who came and brought uh, this new abundant wine to this feast. Let me read um, one of the uh, professors and Old Testament professors and scholars that I was looking at his commentary Uh, And I was going to write down his name right here, and I forgot to. I'll come back next week. Um, But he wrote this. This is just a story. I just want to close with this story. He talks about one Easter, he travels to Jerusalem, and he goes with his 14-year-old daughter, and he went there to lead a conference in Bethlehem for Palestinian and Messianic Jewish pastors. Wow, that would be a privilege. Wow. But he planned this trip. Uh, for the two of them to go to Jerusalem on, and be there on Easter morning. So many of the pilgrims were in the city on Easter morning, and as were reporters and their video cameras, everyone looking for some way or some place that would make the day meaningful. And he says, I walked with Ashley through the Damascus Gate and into the market, winding our, winding our way through the Christian quarter to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre the place of Jesus' tomb, and of course the place of his resurrection. This is a site, he just states, is one of the most sacred sites in the world. And as we stood looking at the tomb, he says, we watched the venerating crowds of people kissing stone and observing Greek and Coptic religious rites. And I could not help but wonder what this tomb has become. Resurrection meant that the tomb lost whatever significance it ever had and ever enjoyed. Christ is gone. He's risen. It says this tomb points elsewhere beyond death to life. Something tragic and fossilized had happened in the Christian ritual that they were kissing stones in order to embrace a living God. So may, may our walk with Jesus and our Christian faith in him, our beliefs, become, not become dead and empty of just kind of walking through the rituals of this or that, merely cultural things, or because I want to please this or that person. But may we genuinely become 
joyful, passionate disciples of Christ. It's our, our mission as Calvary Derby Hill to glorify God by making joyful, passionate disciples. May we become those who, who really walk with him, who really rest in his promise, who are stirred again anew and anew about who Christ is and all that he has done for us. May we be reminded of the true new life and abundant, overflowing grace that we have in him. It's not just our old life with a sprinkling of Jesus in it. It's not sprinkles on top kind of thing, but it's completely made new, you know, like that, that extreme makeover house. They don't just sprinkle a little bit of paint on that house. They demolish and brand new, and Christ does that in us and gives us new life in him. Might we listen and obey Jesus up to the tippy top? <laughs> Jesus says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full John 10, 10, the thief comes that he might steal, kill, steal, and and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's what Christ came. And we see that beginning pictures, this beginning of this chapter. So the way of Jesus, it's not a a kill joy, but it's full of joy and life in him. And it may not be in the way that maybe our our heart first is inclined to find joy and hope, but it's so much better, so much bigger, and so much greater in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you so much for these stories uh, that are not just mere stories, but they're historical accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that um, these physical things throughout these gospels teach us about spiritual truths about Christ and our life in Him. And we thank you for Christ, who is one who. Um, is full of joy. He didn't shy away from the wedding feast and festival, but he entered in. Um, and he is one who comes to make all things right and all things new. And we thank you that that does happen in our lives when we turn from our sins and we trust in you, that you make us new creations. And Lord, we thank you that we can we go to Jesus, that we can listen to all that he says, that we can listen to all that you've said in your word and follow you, and that you're the one that we are to run to when things are falling apart. And we thank you. We thank you that uh, we uh, can rest in you, in your goodness, in your grace. We thank you for Christ who's full of grace and truth. And I pray this morning that you would even stir up in us as we um, as we come in this morning, I know that we come in with different places that we're at in our walk with you, in our wrestling with struggles, and even in our rejoicing. Uh, and Lord, I pray um, for each here, I pray that, that they would rest in Christ, that they would know the hand of the good shepherd who loves us, a good shepherd who didn't shy, also didn't shy away from pain and suffering and death for us in our place. So Lord, I pray that you would stir in us um, the truth that we, if we've rested in you, that we are new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we do remember.